0: Hello and welcome to Shoe's Fresh Ideas podcast. I'm Shoe Das, a startup and technology writer based out of Melbourne, Australia. Since the beginning of 2016, I have been documenting my journey and learnings within the startup universe of Australia and beyond on my blog, Shoe's Green Patch. As I covered stories in the emerging fields of technology and social enterprise, I had the privilege of connecting with incredible founders who are using their creative ingenuity to come up with innovations that touch every area of our lives, from the ways we travel or entertain ourselves to the ways we do business. Shoe's Fresh Ideas podcast is an attempt to bring those conversations online to the broader audience, helping to uncover the human stories of trials and tribulations, successes and failures that entrepreneurs face in bringing their new and innovative ideas to the marketplace. For anyone interested in entrepreneurship or looking to start their own business, I hope that these podcast conversations will offer you realistic perspectives on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and connect you with inspirational founders and influencers within the startup ecosystem. So keep listening. Today, we are speaking with Mads Holman, who is joining me all the way from London. Mads is the founder and CEO of Biblio, a content discovery and recommendation service that helps publishers and organizations build a loyal audience through intelligent content suggestions. Biblio works with many renowned names, such as the National Geographic, New York Public Library, and Open University, and is helping to build a web that offers diverse and enriching learning experiences to consumers through innovative content discovery methods. Mats has worked within the online advertising space for over 10 years and will be sharing some of his very interesting perspectives on current trends in the digital attention economy, filter bubbles, and the evolving domain of artificial intelligence. Mads, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for making the time. Sure, thanks for having me. No it's problem. For, to, for listeners based here in Australia who don't know so much about um, you and also your startup Biblio, can you start with a little bit of a background on you and your startup?
1: I can. Um, I always uh, I always say it's a long story short. But uh, my girlfriend would say it's mostly a long story long but i'll i'll cut it uh, I'll cut it here um yeah i I basically got into sort of digital by a little bit of um of an accident. I was actually still studying in Copenhagen and we had a, a lecture about viral marketing and i I went online as you do uh, after the lecture and yeah. i I did a bit of googling and i it turned out there was a company in Denmark at the time i'm Danish originally um I was doing viral marketing um, with the very fancy name Go Viral, um, I guess clues in the title. Um, and so I, it turns out they had done a little booklet. I uh, wrote in my email, downloaded the booklet. The CEO uh, sent me an email the day after basically saying they were, were looking for, for some expansion because they had signed a few big, big things. They, he could see I had signed up with a student email, whether I wanted to have a chat. And then basically I went in the day after, um, the rest is history, as they say. I started working there while I was a student. When I graduated, um, the, the CEO asked if I wanted to come to London for a year to help start up the London office, as I kind of, you know, wear all the all the hats that that he really couldn't do. Um, that's ten years ago. In, in a week from now, um, so wow. From there on, it really just kind of uh, took off. Over the next six, six, seven years, we opened another um, nine offices in Europe. And ultimately AOL bought the company, um, and now I was kind of in a big American corporate. Not that it was actually as bad as people say about AOL. I, I really want to say that it was it was actually it was actually pretty good. Um, so I, I don't want to at all make them uh, sound like the villain here. I think it was it's just difficult to transition from sort of startup culture into to big company culture, right? Um, so after a few years, I was growing increasingly frustrated with that, and at the same time. I think two the other things were happening. I was beginning to realize that I didn't think that the modern advertising space was necessarily making the web a better place. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, and two, uh, I, I was beginning in particular on YouTube because I was working in online video to discover all these great channels on YouTube that could actually make you smarter. You know, whether it was history or, or interesting subjects, and I, I can throw out a bunch of names like Vsauce and, and stuff that people might or might not know. Um, there's a real thing going on with that at the moment that kind of to the people who know, they're like really, really interesting people and, and cool stars. But I've spoken to Michael Stevens as an example, who, who's Vsauce and, and lives in London now, right? And he's, he says this in a strange way, you he can still mostly walk down the street and no one recognizes him. But then every now and then someone comes and are like really excited. So it's still that strange thing where they, it hasn't really reached mainstream sort of, popularity and, and certainly also in the education and system is only really being recognized now. And so the original idea of Biblio was actually a, um, you know, Biblio essentially in, in most Latin languages is, is bibliotec or biblioteca, which is library. Yes. So essentially the idea was to kind of build a place that would make it easier to discover all the great learning materials uh, on the internet. Set out to start with video and and audio because that felt a bit more innovative, but then sort of decided on a platform that could deal with all formats of content. Then uh, actually built up a a B2C um, sort of site over the next four or five months, left AOL, um, got to about 10,000 users, but then started to have these discussions with investors, right? We had funded it for the first four or five months ourselves, but what was really the business here? Um, And quite frankly, um, two things happened there. A, it proved really hard to convince investors that you could monetize essentially free online content. You know, who was going to pay the bill? Um, which I still, you know, think was a very good question. And I'm glad I didn't didn't venture down that route. But um, the second part was in building Biblio, we ran into two problems. How do you sort of aggregate and tag and curate tens of thousands of content pieces? Um my first response was to hire two girls in Hong Kong to do a lot of tagging.
0: Sure. Um,
1: it doesn't scale very well, I yeah. should say. Um, so when we got to about 70,000 items that we had tagged sort of the, the four of us together, I, I kind of realized that this was really going to be very unsustainable in the long run. Um, so we started lo- looking into sort of how machines could help with tagging. So natural language processing, speech to text, that, that kind of stuff, and got really excited about that basically. Yes.
0: And I'll ask you a little bit about that down the track. And, yes.
1: And by, all, by all means, I think we should get back to that part of it. So let's call this the enrichment phase. Um, sure. And then the second the content was on the platform and, and sort of we, I guess, experienced the same as, as almost every website in the world does now. The far majority of our traffic was coming via sort of search or, or social in particular, which meant that people never really came to our front page. right? They always came to, to a content piece. So my my kind of saying now is really that the content page is the new front page because that's where 80 or 90 percent of visitors actually land. Um, so sure. that's your that's actually your main point of optimization. Um, so that is recommendation, right? That's how recommending the next piece of content so that that user doesn't leave again and go back to their Facebook feed, but actually stay on your site and starts what I sort of call the transition from from casual tourist to to regular visitor, right? Um, and, and so we also got really fascinated about this recommendation thing. And, uh, and about three months later, we basically closed a little bit of sort of early angel funding on the premise of going and building a, a SaaS company for businesses that would take on these two things, help them to enrich their content and help them recommend the right content to the right user. And how long ago was that? So that would have been um, about February, March 15. Okay. And so how
0: many... Um, iterations did your product go before you reached that, you know, B2B, um, product and, you know, when, when you could really so, start scaling and you had found that, um,
1: sweet spot where you could monetize? I, I think. You know, we only really launched the what we call the commercial version of the of the APIs uh, here in April this year. So about two years okay. later, really. But um, but but I guess we didn't really, you know, from February, fifteen, and and at least the first months forward, it was very much a question of sort of figuring out what we should do. So so in reality, I guess it then when we had decided on that in the summer. Basically, it took about eighteen months to build it out. Um, so, so and and you know, essentially living on a on a stone. I would only really say it's from from April this year that we've been able to sort of go from from running pilots to people sort of yeah. using the API technology, but not having it available as a standardized product. To actually now having a sort of standardized API product that people could walk in from the street and and pick up and and get going with in a few hours.
0: Sure. And so how do you see this uh, product scaling further? Because at, the, so at this point, point, you are working with in National Geographic and you're working with the New York Public Library, which are like really great institutions. And you're helping them with better engagement online and, you know, keep their like their clients and their customers engaged and coming back to their sites. So, how do you see? Uh, do you see yourself scaling into other niches um, outside of the knowledge space, or do you do you want to be within that space?
1: Well, so we we say now that we have sort of three verticals with with Biblio. What we call high high quality publishing. Um, you'll probably never see us work too much in the in the sort of viral entertainment space. Um, I. I think we fundamentally have decided to break with, with the, the sites that sort of only care about page views and, and, and clicks, but, but really work with typically magazines, vertical publishers, subscription publishers, anyone who sort of have decided that the user is their main customer. Um, sure. And then the second bit is what you could call libraries and books. Um, so library platforms, but certainly also kind of book, book platforms in general, where students might discover and buy books, et cetera. Um, and then the third area is, is really what we call learning and knowledge. So that's the more sort of course platforms. Um, anyone who sort of has a more formal learning and knowledge product, the reality of that is most of those companies uh, at the moment that we work with are aimed at employees, not actually sort of kids in school. The sad reality of the world is that as long as schools and are testing knowledge the way they are. There's actually very little room for kind of suggesting content that goes outside the linear curriculum. So there's actually not that many opportunities for sort of legitimate content discovery at a primary school level because you know, there's very little time left above and beyond sort of curriculum and homework. Um, it's mostly about getting them through that, really. So, So a lot of it, you know, I often... I often say now that it's only really somewhere between 20 and 25 that most people realize that they actually don't know very much yet. And then the real learning starts, right? Until then, learning is something you just do. Um, it's only in that age that learning starts to become something that you want to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much generalizing here. I know that there's millions of, of kids who are, who are extremely curious and, and would love a better education system that actually addresses this thing that we're talking about now but the, the reality of the education system as such is that it it doesn't um there's a great quote from joy ito at mit that says education is what the system does to you right learning is what you do for yourself so i, I like that distinction between education and learning which we we went with the term learning and knowledge not education as such yeah so those are kind of our three verticals and um, between yeah. that there's, there's you know millions of companies to work with um so I, I think we can stay on that for, for a long time. And what we rather want to do is sort of extend the services that we can offer those companies. Um, I think that there's very few companies at the moment in the world trying to help those companies um, create a better future for themselves. So it's a challenge that we're quite excited about. The reality of the online publishing space is that most of the money is going to Facebook and Google. And everybody else is kind of left fighting for scraps, trying to hit their their budget and keep the lights on. Um, I would love to see a world where where the sort of mid tail long tail publishers of the internet are flourishing again. Uh, I think the original vision of the internet was kind of a decentralized network of tons of different platforms and this kind of multitude of opinion. But the reality really is that you know power on the internet is very centralized around a, a, a small handful of companies, um, and we we tend to all discover the actual web via those companies. So it's what I call vertical distribution. At the moment, most people really discover the web through Facebook or, or Twitter or Google. Um, I would love a world where where people could also better discover knowledge across the web. You know, Examples like WordPress, et cetera, that are building a real community of sites on the web, not just sort of feed into these big platforms. So that's really the, the vision that we have, is sort of how do you try to help the web become a, a more Well, I I should sum it up and say a better place because for me it would be a better place, but but also a place where they can make a living, where they can find users and where users can find them Mm -hmm. and where the best content wins, not the content that's been most socially optimized and most click optimized and most, you know, A-B tested to drive the exact right clickbait headline. Uh, irrespective of the content itself, right? It seems like there's more effort going into optimizing the thumbnail and the title than the actual content once you've clicked through, right? And I think that's a shame. I think we all lose in that game, maybe except Facebook.
0: Yeah, so it's pretty interesting because that is, I guess, where um, my next question is going to come from, is probably looking into that attention, kind of going into the attention economy. And then we, we have these very large, Content aggregators like Facebook and um, and say Instagram or Twitter and most uh, you know you are l- accessing most of the web through these very few uh, aggregated platforms and um, and do you do you feel that these platforms are kind of um, you know for short term profits they're kind of sacrificing some of the long term gains that could come out of um, the internet actually educating the masses and connecting people. And because at this point in time, people are just like, they're getting too much of the same thing instead of being able to access a diversity of uh, content and views and uh, opinions across the internet.
1: So I think there's, there's two things that are important in that conversation. Um, First is to say that I think as humans, we have, both sides in us, right? And I should be the first to say that uh, I also don't, I don't expect the world and I don't want to live in a world where humans are sort of 100% focused all the time, right? It's also okay to sort of pull the plug for an hour and, and chat to friends or laugh at a cat on the internet, right? I actually yeah. don't have any problem with that at all. I think my challenge is, is actually more structural. Um, is that all of these companies, uh, Facebook, etc, are really driven by, you know, they sell attention. That's the commodity that they sell to advertisers. And so you sort of enter into a structural challenge where they have to drive more and more attention to make more money. Uh, And that will, I think, inevitably be more and more sort of short-term attention thinking, because you've got to optimize those numbers, right? So I, I, I think, someone like Facebook could run the risk. You know, I I actually, when I talk to people now, it seems like at least for for a large amount of people, um, they they actually use Facebook less, right? Because they get that feeling of sameness, that it's just more of the same and there, there's not enough diversity and, and there's not enough challenging them. At the same time, uh, we also, as humans, we are very prone to fall into these addi- addiction tactics, right? It's very tempting when, we get a notification saying, you know, someone's put a photo on, of you on the internet, and they're talking about you. It takes a it takes a very confident person to not just check what the whole world is saying about you on the internet, right? Yeah. Um, and and so I think it's more that whole structural challenge around notifications and hijacking our attention and trying to get us back as quick, you know, as quickly as possible and as often as possible. Um, I I sort of in that sense compare Facebook a little bit to a needy friend right it's it's not a great friend who kind of wants your attention all the time but doesn't actually have very much new to offer when they want your attention and I think they need they need to watch out that they don't fall in that bracket Um, at the same time I don't think you can expect of companies like Facebook and Google who are essentially ad funded businesses at this point in time with, with Google, I also mean YouTube, et cetera, right. And with Facebook, I I mean, Instagram, et cetera. Yes. Um, I don't think you can expect of those companies to act in any other way when their main economic incentive is advertising. Right. So I guess my biggest structural question is this whole ad funded internet. I don't think, you know, having been part of the party myself for 10 years, I don't think the online advertising has lived uh, up to its, um, Sort of responsibility of balancing uh, between user behavior and and monetization, um, I think the sort of explosion in app blocking, et cetera, is really all a symptom that we haven 't found the right balance right um, and I think that's really the, the that's really the soup we 're in right now is that we're we're in this place where all the big players in the space can 't really change because they 've committed their business model to to a way of doing business that forces them down this path of of sort of addiction and attention. Um, I think it was very brave of someone like Pinterest the other day, Pinterest CEO, to go out and say they've actually stopped measuring time spent on site as a measure of success. It's really about whether people achieve their goals. You know, did people leave Pinterest going, that was a great board. Now Now I feel like I can start my interior design project or, you know, I really wanted to research plants. Now I feel like I've done that and I've achieved it. I think there's been a a huge focus on the internet of what I call top-line metrics, you know, clicks and page views, and very little focus on deeper satisfaction metrics. And I think that's the main thing that is going to change over the next three to five years, is people are going to have to look deeper at those metrics and try to do more to keep the user happy, not just for that first one, two, three, or ten sessions, but actually feeling satisfied with the service.
0: Uh, My next question would be, like, would you see that... If people move away from, you know, content, which is primarily about selling them ads to content, which is deeper and more, more meaningful and more satisfying that more and more people would be more willing to pay for content. And so the monetization model would shift, say from having lots of free content with advertising to something like Netflix kind of a model where you pay a subscription and to access really great content?
1: I, I think, uh, in fact, I think it is actually already happening to a certain degree. Um, we work with a lot of, of what you could call tier two and tier three publishers, so kind of uh, vertical publishers in fashion or travel or, or whatever, who have all found better ways of making money now than just sort of programmatic advertising, standard banner advertising. Either they do kind of co-creation with brands and, and focus on a, a number of brands that are super relevant to their audience. Again, I don't per se have anything against this kind of native advertising and co-creation of, of content as long as the, the user wins. Um, and secondly, is a subscription, right? And I think the interesting bit, if you sort of backtrack what happened, is really because Facebook's algorithms have been prioritizing, essentially, clickbaity content. It has kind of forced newsrooms to create more clickbaity content. So in a way, publishers have been dragged into this game. Um, And you're right. I think when when someone pays a subscription, when the user becomes your primary customer, again, not Facebook, then the way stories, the way content gets commissioned changes as well. Right. The New York Times had a very great report a few months back called the the 2020 report where their data science department have proven that there is no correlation between the most popular articles on the New York Times and the articles that contribute to someone becoming a subscriber. In fact, there's an inverse relationship between a story's popularity and its value to the New York Times as a subscription business. And I think it's very interesting that actually those really popular stories about Trump and Kim Kardashian and stuff that you can read anywhere. No one actually wants to pay for those, right? But that long, tail, you know, that, that long piece, investigative piece about productivity at work or you know, what's happening in the Chinese economy, or you know, those are the stuff that, that, that groups of people are willing to pay a premium for. I think publishers, especially the big news publishers, have to realize that the old world, the kind of omni-channel world where they were both entertainment and knowledge, it might be very difficult to build a business in the future that is both entertainment and knowledge. Because on the entertainment side, you're competing head-to-head with, you know, Clash of Clans and, you know, Game of Thrones. And, you know, in that attention economy, I talked about all those things actually compete for the same 24 hours, right? Yes. So that competition is definitely becoming hyper-competition. And unless you're BuzzFeed or Post that's designed to participate in that game, I think you're going you're gonna to find that it's a very bloody arena, right? Um, so more and more of the quality publishers are actually going the other way. They're going towards subscription models, premium models, uh, really delivering content that isn't found anywhere else. Um, and I think that's, that is a very sound strategy, actually. And, and you know everybody was laughing at the Financial Times six, seven years ago when they went behind a paywall. Now the Financial Times largely are laughing at all the others because they actually now have 1.3 or 1.4 million paying subscribers and a, and a yeah. very good business. Publishers have to recognize that it takes some time to build up that trust and that product that users are willing to pay for, um, but it can be done. Uh, we've seen a host of media companies launch in Europe recently, The uh, Republik, The uh, Correspondent, Perspective Daily in Germany, that have all launched as membership-based models, kind of like the information in, in San Francisco. So actually starting, they don't even call them subscribers, they call them members, right? And they are very happy to declare that they, the content they create are created for the members based on what the members are telling them that they want more of. And they don't run ads um, and they're funded by their members to serve their members. And I would love to see more of this kind of community-driven content come through. And I also have to be realistic and say it's still a minority of the population that are paying for content online, right? But but hopefully something like Netflix and Spotify are teaching people that it's okay to pay for content.
0: Yes. Um, I guess, like, you know, as we talk about these niche publications, which, um, you know, which have their own dedicated user base, uh, maybe we'll come to the, um, you know, talk a little bit about, the idea of the eco chambers and the filter bubbles um, which are also forming because of the algorithmic tailoring of content uh, by Facebook and Google and so forth based on what you have clicked before or what you have liked before so do you feel that you know if we have these con- like you know user pools who are only paying for content for Financial Times or New York Times or you know some other kind of organization that they will only get these you know these small streams of content and would lose out on content from the wider web so how do you how do you have a diversity of content um that you consume and you know have open world views?
1: um i i think um i don't think i have a solution to this <laughs> sure I think I can maybe point to some of the challenges. Um, I think the challenges in many ways are on both sides of the aisle, right? Because um, to use a good old kind of Dickens, this is the best of times and it's the worst of times, right? Um, I think without a doubt for some people, this is the best media that we've ever had, right? You can discover, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a TED talk with a guy called Logan LaPlant, who's like a, a, at the time 12 or 13 years old and kind of talks about his learning journey, right? for kids like him this is the best of times right all the knowledge in the world is out there if you if you're skilled at navigating it if you've got great digital literacy skills media literacy skills this is the best of of times without a doubt right we've got so much amazing content online and and people can discover these sources of, of amazing knowledge that fits to them you know from a from a with my educationalist hat on, just the fact that as a person I can choose the kind of teacher that fits with my style, right? I can find that YouTube guy who just talks about this subject in the way that that excites me. You know, we can sort of all find our best teacher. But there's also many ways to fall off that path along the way, right? YouTube constantly tries to remind you that you also like gaming and, you know, try to get you back into watching music videos and you know and Facebook is constantly giving you notifications that all your other friends are building up their social currency while you're getting smarter. And maybe you should go and join the party rather than get clever. You know, there's a lot of things that, that face a, a young person today. And also, to be fair, the rest of us, right, of, of choices that fall on us. And I, I like com- to compare it to the obesity epidemic, right? And, and we still have this notion in society that if someone ends up being overweight, it's largely their own fault. And, and in doing so, we completely ignore the system that promotes way too much unhealthy food and has advertised, you know, unhealthy food to kids for, for decades, right? You, I, I sort of ran a little experiment recently on Instagram of just taking photos of average fruits and vegetables and put them on Instagram, right? Just as a sort of antithesis to this whole world of like amazing beaches and, you know, de- amazing meals and, and cool new food, you know, acai berry bowls and, and all this kind of stuff. I just thought, what you know, what happens if you take a photo of a regular onion and put it on Instagram? Right, the onion doesn't get very much attention these days. Right, no one advertises on behalf of the onion or the avocado. Um, and I think what what's actually happened in food is that a, a smaller, mostly city-dwelling part of the population has ended up living extremely healthily, but actually the the, the vast majority of the population hasn't. And I think that's that issue we could really transfer over to, to this online economy too. I think really for, for, for some part of the population, this is the best media we've ever had, but for the vast majority of the population, it might be the worst media we've ever had. Right. There's the old, um, there's an old book by a guy called Neil Postman written in 1985 called amusing ourselves to death. And he's talking about daytime television, but, but you could really sort of, Insert social media instead of television, and and the book would be as relevant today, right? And he, in the intro to the book, he talks about how we've we've been so scared of this kind of Orwellian nightmare of surveillance and and stuff being hidden from us, the truth being hidden from us. But he sort of points out um, Aldous Huxley, who who wrote A Brave New World, in which we've we've kind of all just become trivialized, right? Where the truth isn't hidden; it's just drowned in a sea of irrelevance, of of clickbait and and entertainment. And I actually think that second version of the future is more realistic than than the Orwellian one, right? I, I think it's actually the explosion in content. And mostly, I wrote an article the other day that sort of said everyone can share everything they want online now, right? And and mostly it's not very interesting. <laughs> you know that that actually that's really the feeling I get now when I sort of scroll through Instagram. right? I sort of go. Great. So you've also been to a beach, right? And great, you also had lunch, right? It's. I mean, um, and I think that that's really the thing that I that I hope we can challenge in the next years is just content for the sake of content. And back to talking about my cynical side of me would say that that it the, a more realistic scenario really is that society breaks more and more in two, and that we'll struggle more and more to speak to each other. I think in a way the whole election. Debates we've had, Brexit, Trump, et cetera, really show how little these two groups, the kind of progressive liberal uh, city dwellers and, and sort of the rest of the, of the countries they live in, how little they actually understand each other these days and how little they're able to just have a conversation with each other. Because they've been shaped so much by the views of the community that they're in that it's actually difficult to cross the bridge, right? Um, and And so I, my fear is that that's actually what's really happening, and that we're doing very little to stop that
0: because education traditionally has been uh, a medium through which you create bridges between you know between distant cultures and uh, you introduce someone to a new um, field of uh, human endeavor such as the sciences and arts and humanities and whatnot. So how do you see um, Online education playing that part in building bridges between different communities who at at this point in time have just become a bit divided because of like the kind of contents they consume. Like, do we need like a balanced information diet? And is that something that everyone has to be like prescribed in a way?
1: Well, I I guess your interesting point is actually on the last one, right? It's sort of who has the authority to prescribe that to people? Yeah. Um, and do people really want that nutritious diet, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Don't they want McDonald's because McDonald's is nice, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I like McDonald's every now and then, right? I hope I, I, hope I don't do it too often, but I guess I'm trying to say that in a way we're all humans. And that's, that's one of the challenges here is that we can be persuaded. We can be manipulated. We can be sort of taken down a, a sugary road, right? Um, and I think the challenge, the real challenge that the online education, sort of the edtech space have really is that when I look across it, most of what is really offering educational products to the people who le- need it the least. Right? And I don't know if you've seen some of the stats, but it's like 90% of people you know, who complete a, a sort of Coursera course already has a, a degree, right? In many ways, most of that industry at the moment, unfortunately, only helps people who don't really need help. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's still a huge challenge in the edtech space of how do you actually impact um, the people who really need education the most, you know, the people in third world countries who can't really afford it, because how do you build a business model delivering education to people who can't afford to buy it? You know, it's it's a very good question, right? And secondly... In, in, in the more established countries, how do you deliver education to people who don't want it, right? Mm-hmm. Who people, people who mostly seek out other types of, of content. Uh, can we sit them down and force them to go through it, right? Um, and I think that, that's the real challenge, is that for most people, there's, a, there's simply an a easier route every day than, than the route that's challenging, right? And it's a little bit like exercise. Kind of how do you get people to do stuff that's hard? Um, yeah. I, I think that's the real challenge that the edtech space haven't talked much about is how are we gonna how are we gonna get the the remaining eighty percent of the population that still hasn't used an an edtech product right? Um, that's actually the real challenge for me is to broaden the reach of those products to to actually reach the people who could benefit most from them.
0: Um, do you think, um, say, um, governments have a role because you know in most nations government subsidizes education um in you know in traditional universities and schools and um you know other institutions so if they subsidize edtech products that
1: can die. you know i was going to say being uh, being um being danish i guess i always think the government has a role to play right where we're, i guess we're famous all over the world for for sort of big government um yeah. I think I I think this whole notion that big government is a is a bad thing um, disregards a few fundamental facts. Right, that markets have always needed to be regulated. Uh, Education has always needed to be subsidized. Um, That in fact, when people pay a a decent tax and you can offer a decent social system, you tend to get lower crime rates, you know, higher progress, more prosperity. Not actually the opposite. So. I think the sort of Fundamental Economics 101 uh, will tell me that that yes, some regulation and and government intervention is going to be needed. Um, I I think we should also welcome that. I think as populations, we're better off for having someone in government um, looking after us um, and regulating on our behalf. Um, I don't know how much it's filtered through to Australia, but there's a huge effort now from the the EU. to sort of look at these companies like Google and Facebook and, and figure out if some sort of regulation needs to apply, right? Uh, can we just let these companies roam free with no ethical or, or, or journalistic responsibility, right? Um, you can say for Facebook when they become people's main source of news, can they really still just claim that they're a platform, or can we expect better of them? And I, I kind of totally bought the point originally. You know that the landmark case was kind of Google or YouTube against Viacom, right? Could you sue? YouTube for some stuff that people uploaded onto YouTube that, that might belong to Viacom. At that point, YouTube was a kind of 40, 50-man company, right? I, I totally side with them in the sense that they were trying to build a platform and they couldn't technically and feasibly be expected to sort that out at that point in time. When Facebook is now a $600 billion company or whatever they are, I think you can expect better of them, right? Now, they do have 10, 15,000 employees and, and billions of, of dollars in the bank. Now, I think you can expect them to do better, right? In a way, those companies behind the the kind of, um, you know, we're just a platform defense. And just, you know, since since you're Australian and, and we can talk about the sort of resource industries and mining and oil exploration, et cetera, I, yeah. I love the term negative externalities. Are those companies really aware of their negative externalities, right? Of Of teenagers feeling anxious about themselves because everyone on Instagram looks good all the time, you know? all of these things that are actually now and well-documented, right? But that yeah. those companies seem to do very little to actually get around, right? Um, how, how do you see the future
0: will evolve? Probably more regulations will come in, online education will, you know, will probably move into, you know, all these, like, say, mid-tier um, providers will probably grow. And also, do you see um, the role of the traditional um, you know education providers such as universities and sort of moving more and more online and that can sort of help to create a place where there is more more authentic information and um and less news and
1: gimmicky news and these professions getting in i i think again i'm um i'm kind of split on that right because i'm not i'm not sure um mm-hmm. i i think on the one hand um I was having this conversation with a few people recently, right? Um, if you look all across the world, you mm-hmm. know, on a very helicopter view, it seems like things on the whole are going in the right direction. More and more people are going through school. Someone mentioned to me that a generation ago it was about 30% of Kenyan school uh, kids that went to school. Now it's, it's almost 100%, right? That's just one little story from one little country of the progress that has been made in the world in the last 30, 40 years. Um, you know, if you look all across the world, I think more progressive values generally are winning. At the same time, I think we really have to watch out uh, that we don't uh, lose a significant amount of people on the, on the, on the ground in that process. Yes. You know, I, I do feel that there are legitimate groups of the population who feel left out by globalization, who feel left out by, by the way that this world is moving and the speed that it's moving at. I was going to uh, shift gears a little bit uh, and come into more of the future
0: in terms of looking into the buzzwords, such as machine learning, which your um, company is trying to harness uh, to give those predictive suggestions for content and, mm-hmm. um, um, and also like how you're harnessing data. So um, can you give us a bit more
1: insight into what you're doing in Biblio? Of course. Um, so there's two uh, two sides to our business. One is is kind of understanding the the content. So um, natural language processing is a huge part of that. Um, yeah. I think it's only really in the last five years that we've got to a point where natural language processing sort of passes that threshold where where it's good enough. Um, I still don't think I- it's good enough at all things. Um, and Can you
0: explain that- uh, a little bit more on natural language processing? Because I I hear this word thrown around a lot, but you know a yes. lot of people are quite afraid to ask because they don't want to appear you know ignorant. So yeah, it would be good. Like if you start from like the level of a five
1: year old, or okay, um, there are there are two ways you can understand human language. One is is mathematical, and one is semantic. Sure. um the mathematical one is in many ways is easier um it's It's really that you sort of turn all these words into a representation mathematically and you see which words come out closer to each other. you start to see patterns in words so so really sort of pattern recognition at a large scale, and that actually it's sort of from the bottom up can build you a vocabulary um this is essentially Google Translate, right? Google Translate is really a mathematical translation of language, not a semantic translation of language. So they've really looked at different languages, look at coincidence of words appearing together, working out which words are closely related to each other in different languages and being able to offer translation, right? Which is why sometimes Google Analytics still get the grammar wrong, but get the words right. Because grammar is more in the domain of semantics. Whereas the direct translation of the words really can be done mathematically very well. So, so the first part of that is, is a mathematical interpretation of language that turns all, all the words into uh, vectors and basically finds out vectors that are, that are close to each other. Um, one of the main uh, things here is, is called, uh, when you want to use this for recommendation, is, is called TF-IDF. It's a term frequency inverse document frequency. So you look at the frequency of terms and documents, and you look at how they relate to each other across different documents. And then you look at the relative inverse frequency of those words in the overall corpus. Um, so that's a purely mathematical approach to language that does very well of finding related content. Mm-hmm. You know, Exceptionally well. In some ways it actually still does better than a semantic way of doing it. Um, we we've also built on the semantic part of it so a great example here is amazon right is amazon is it the company or the forest or the river or you know washington is it washington the state washington the city washington the former president um you really realize that language actually has multiple meanings um you know Irony when I as a when I as a human use language, I often don't use it in the way that it's literally meant. Right. And one of the other problems with a, a purely mathematical approach to language is that a lot of the stuff that we humans mean, we don't actually say. Right. So I always use the example of, of Shakespeare. Right. But if you just ask a machine to read Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare didn't actually write tragedy anywhere. Right. Yes. Uh, he didn't really write love very often. But every human you stop on the street know that Romeo and Juliet is not about Verona in the 16th century, right? It's about a love tragedy. Um, so I think there's, there's a really interesting notion here also that a lot of language is never said. A lot of meaning is, is only implied. And that's really where the semantic understanding of language comes in, kind of knowledge databases and stuff. So we also have a system that can begin to detect in language things that we can map to, say, Wikipedia articles. Mm-hmm. So if we spot um, Steve Jobs in in a in an article, we can actually know that it is the Steve Jobs, right, the actual former CEO of Apple, and that's what's really interesting about the the semantic side of it and what people call linked open data is that there is beginning to be a web of knowledge on the web under underneath the web. So Wikipedia has something called Wikidata, which is the largest kind of knowledge database of structured knowledge that the world has ever seen. And my prediction actually in the next 10, 15 years is Wikidata might ultimately prove to be Wikipedia's biggest achievement, not Wikipedia itself, because that data layer now powers lots and lots of actual knowledge discovery. Um, So there's a, a very exciting sort of structural layer of understanding of meaning that are emerging from the web, because we now have so much data out there that we can train machines on to get better at the semantic side of meaning. So at the moment, natural language processing is better at the mathematical approach, but it's definitely accelerating very fast into the semantic approach too. I don't know if that does it for a five-year-old. It might be a (laughs) 10-year-old. Or maybe a
0: 25-year-old. Who knows? Yeah,
1: or maybe a 25-year-old. But fundamentally, it's the ability of computers to understand human language.
0: Yes, in, in the right context and in the context that it's used. Yes. Um, and so you are using, um, using a combination of both the mathematical and the semantic ways to suggest the appropriate content or the most relevant content that, it, uh, that a user should click on next or consume next. And that way that you yeah. enhance and their engagement.
1: And what you can say the main innovation here is that mm-hmm. rather than just apply tags, we apply tags with a with a scoring, sure. so we can say that this item is ninety five percent Steve Jobs, but this item is only seventy two percent Steve Jobs, and you realize until now that sort of categorization and tagging has actually been very black and white, right? Either it has the tag or it doesn't. Yes, yeah. um, we need a much finer grain of detail in evaluating what it really is about. Um, so both for search and for recommendation. Um, really at their heart, they are ranking technologies. They try to look at a at a large list of possibilities and they try to rank the right possibility to be number one. And to do that, we need a much finer understanding of tagging and, and categorization than traditional human tagging can offer.
0: Absolutely. Um, I actually studied um, um, biology for quite a while and um, in bioinformatics, when you're you have a piece of DNA sequence and you kind of go through that kind of a search to find which sequence is the most similar so you do a very granular sort of a search and yeah I guess probably some of that kind of back-end work happens. in.
1: Yes. Yeah and then the interesting bit when you move over to recommendation is is then um, you know in, in DNA strings it's very it's relatively easier to define similarity and you're only looking for similarity. Yeah. The problem is when we try to do recommendation to a person, that person doesn't just care about similarity. They also care about recency and popularity and engagement and which thumbnail image the article has. And, you know, human decision-making, actually there's a very interesting study that was done uh, on recommender systems that kind of proved that if you just take a, complete diverse list of results, like a basically random recommendations. They will, in many instances, perform better than the most similar items. Yeah. So interestingly enough, humans also really appreciate things like diversity. Um, and actually it goes a bit against what we talked about with filter bubble, because actually when you look at human behavior, we really do appreciate diversity and serendipity. We really do appreciate when systems find the stuff that we didn't know that we liked. The challenge for a lot of those systems is when do you take the risk? You know, when do you take the chance on introducing something new? Because it feels safer to not do it, right? Yeah. So th- that's the kind of, when, when you get over from the, from the natural language understanding over to the actual recommendation problem, you know, the best recommendation is really a never-ending goal. Because what was the best recommendation for you yesterday might not be the best recommendation for you tomorrow, right? Yeah. So humans change all the time. It's just to say that in recommendation, everything is a moving goalpost all the time. Yeah. It's what makes the area so exciting, but also so difficult.
0: Yeah, so is that also like the machine learning aspect of it in terms of you know, the, your system needs to get, iteratively it needs to kind of get better at you know, doing the recommendations, when to introduce serendipity and diversity. And based on the data that you have collected, you, you know, you're, from your users, you are getting better at doing so that. So we,
1: we, we look at three sets of data, uh, kind of ob- objective data about the, the content itself. So again, all the natural language understanding, etc tagging, keywords, when it was published, anything that we can sort of objectively know about the content. Then we look at generalized behavior. You know, so some items might simply be better than other items, right? Um, when users click them on average, they do much better than other items that you know, generalized behavior is, is still a quite powerful tool. And then you look at individual user, what you could sort of call that user's interest graph. You know, What is that user more interested in than anybody else? And actually, there are some very good um, work that has been done on how you can measure objective, objectively in your system things like diversity. Um, as an example, you can measure the likelihood that a certain user gets recommended a certain item that isn't popular. Um, so, so there are ways of getting around it and there are ways of addressing it, but yes, that is the main area of, of machine learning for Biblio is really trying to establish as many features as possible, you know, recency, popularity, diversity, and actually have, have handles on those, Like, right? No, when you sort of say as a user, I want more diversity, what does that actually mean from an algorithmic point of view? Like, how can we respond to that algorithmically? So the first you know, year of Biblio was really to try to establish some of those handles, actually give our data scientists the tools to go and, and do that. Um, and then once we've done that, now it's much more a kind of machine learning race to figure out which of those features should dominate the recommendation at, at any given moment, right? Um, does that change for different contexts at different times for different users? Um, obviously, the answer is yes but then how do you build a system that can sort of give each individual user the best version of the system for them without just again trapping them in a bubble we're getting
0: back into it um, so like ai is a ta- or artificial inter- intelligence is one of those terms you know when it comes to the whole area of um, machine learning and predictive analytics this ai this general ai term gets uh, thrown around quite a bit and in the media there is always the speculation that in you know in five ten years time a lot of jobs will be lost and um you know there's fear AI will take over and so it's um so what is your take on that what's the fact what's the fiction
1: mm-hmm. um my standard assumption now is still that. Um, mostly machines are very far away from anything that resembles artificial general intelligence so so you can sort of define between what i like to simply call machine learning which is the functions of machines to kind of find patterns in large amounts of data and and make decisions in many cases now better than humans right um We've seen it in sort of diagnosis of of disease, as an example, where machines trained on millions of pictures can actually learn to do better than than doctors. Um, So problems like that, that can be modeled and can be trained, uh, I think we're already seeing machines outstripping humans. Um, I don't think that means all doctors go away, right? It yeah. simply means that the diagnosis part of their job might not be as big part of their job as it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one main one I would be scared of at the moment is the self-driving car, simply because in most countries in the world, driving is the single largest occupation. Yes. So I think there is a very real risk there that you, that you could create societal change faster than society can cope with it. You know, if you try to displace half a million American truck drivers with automated trucks, I don't necessarily think those people will go down without some protest, right? And and maybe they sh- also shouldn't, you know. Um, so, so that's actually the one area that I, you know, that I'm particularly focused on when it comes to the near future. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that at the moment, people are overly optimistic about how long it's going to take to roll out self-driving cars around the world, I think it's one of those sometimes where I think technology people fall into the, into the trap of thinking that just because it's technologically possible, it's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that severely underestimates the social side of society. Right? <laughs> that might disagree. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and also the regulatory um, side of society as well.
1: Yep. Um, the, the case in point here was Google glass, right? Just because you can do it doesn't mean it's going to happen and everyone's going to love it. Right. Sure. Um, so, so, At the same time, on the other side, um, the artificial general intelligence, the ability of a machine to kind of mimic a human in, in all the human's kind of holistic, heuristic glory, I think is very far away. You can say in many ways, the pieces we're putting together now, computer vision, natural language understanding, those are really the building blocks, right? So you can say at the moment, we're at the age of assembling the building blocks. Um, I still think that general artificial sort of intelligence is, is at least a few decades out, uh, if not more. Um, I think one of the challenges of building an artificial general, general intelligence system is that you need to model human intelligence. And as my good old uh, teacher at university taught me, right, this is one of the classic fallacies in, in the theory of science, right, is that you can model a system from inside the system itself, right? humans cannot fully accurately model humanity because we don't fully understand ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there there's a sort of scientific paradox there to me that I don't think that the technologists at the moment are realizing the fundamental complexity of. We as humans don't fundamentally understand what it means to be human.
0: Sure. So, I, so if you see that, like, there are some jobs that, you know, are at risk of, um, you know, Extinction in the coming, you know, few coming decade or so. Do you think that education and the evolving nature of education and the kind of work that you're doing with Biblio in um, in the online space that has a role to play in upskilling people um, so that they can transition into the future economy better and move into different kinds of roles?
1: I I very much hope so. Um, I would say in many ways that that industry has failed if that is not the case. Um, I think there are, however, um, there is a two-step process to be aware of, right? That um, to really benefit from that world. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to sort of say this as as um, I, I don't have any prejudice around it. I'm simply trying to state it as a fact that to benefit from that whole ecosystem, people will need to have a certain level of media literacy and a certain level of technical literacy. And I think that's the real role of the sort of more established education system is to provide people with that toolkit that allows them to benefit from these opportunities. And that I would love to see the education system focus much more on than it does, is to actually give the people the tools, you know, that good old sort of teach a man to fish, right? Um, At the moment, the education system is simply trying to feed people every day, not trying to teach them to fish. Um, And I think that's the thing that hopefully in the more established education system will start to change over the next 10, 20 years.
0: Sure. And um, I guess, I mean, on that note, I will kind of, the last question would be like, so what do you see the future role of a human being evolving into? Like is, you know, a lot of the robots and, you know, robotics and, you know, the, Um, machines are going to do a lot of these, you know, day in, day out drivel that a lot of people do. Um, And it frees up uh, human beings to really think higher and deeper and more creatively. Um, And it frees up a lot of time. So what should Mm -hmm. humanity be thinking about? Like, what should we solve? is, Is it time for like higher philosophical conversations and greater creativity? And how do you prepare for that future when a lot of people will have that opportunity?
1: Um, Um, It also frees a lot more time up to be scrolling your Facebook or Instagram feed. Yes, (laughs) as well. Um, How you look at it. I I guess the two extremes would be to sort of say, on the one end, if we don't watch out, humans could end up as the perfect consumption machines, right? on the other side of course yes i i hope that it will translate into you know greater advances in philosophy and ethics and morals and 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 you know the advancement of humanity as as such uh which i still you know it's a it's a term that's strangely fallen out of of favor these days is to talk about sort of one's willingness to dedicate oneself to the betterment of of humanity right um we live in a very individualist culture at the moment. Um, and I think, I hope that that's some of the stuff that it can bring. Um, I think it's very important to say that that is not a given, that I think the the, the way we go is very much up to us. Um, at this point in time, I think there, there are multiple realistic scenarios. Um, it might be really, as I said, a case of, of multiple of them happening at the same time, which might in themselves cause both, Um, challenges and sort of really amazing um, futures that we can't imagine yet Um, I'm fundamentally an optimist you know my old history teacher taught me that if you just look long enough back you'll realize that human the history of humanity is one long line of progress yeah with blimps on the way right and and so I fundamentally remain an optimist on on humanity's behalf Um, but I've also just read Sapiens and I'm, I'm starting with Homo Deus recently, you know, in, a, in soon, the, the Harari books. And yeah, they're two of my favorite. Serve, yes. <laughs> yeah, it would serve us well to remember that we're still biological creatures and that we are fallible and that we need to work hard on ourselves if we want to achieve that future that we can achieve. Sure. Um, we tend to think that technology and, and society will do it for us. Um, and I think that's a dangerous attitude to, to take Um, because i don't think these futures are given um so i don't know if that if that does it for an answer i i i fundamentally remain positive i think human humanity has shown time and time again its ability to reinvent itself and to and to push to greater heights um i see no reason why that wouldn't happen again i think sometimes we get caught up in these discussions about how technology is making our lives worse and and whatever but you know, the the other example I use sometimes is uh, Julius Iago, right? The Kenyan who won the world championships in javelin last time. And he taught himself to throw javelin off YouTube videos, right? So maybe we're also disregarding all the millions and millions of people all over the world who are now slowly and gradually picking up knowledge from our collective intelligence. And what the kind of butterfly effect of all of that stuff will mean for the world in the next 20 30 40 years will it suddenly mean that we get a generation of sort of ultra intelligent young people through that really will help to make this true i i hope that's the case i hope that there's a lot of aspiring bodying amazing young people that are coming through in the next years and that society will allow them to flourish and shine and and take us in the right direction
0: yeah i guess with that note of optimism and caution and creativity <laughs> and uh, advancement of human knowledge, we'll probably end the podcast today. Yeah. Thanks Hi. so
1: much, Mads, for your time. Thank you, Shu. Sure. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all the questions. It's rare that you get to uh, to go on a ramble.
0: Hi there. This is Shu again thanking you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed the content, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes to keep up to date on future episodes. If you'd like to check out my regular blog articles, please visit shoesgreenpatch.com. Also, you can find me at shoesgreenpatch on Twitter or Instagram or like the Shoes Green Patch Facebook page. I look forward to connecting with you and hearing your feedback. Until next time, goodbye.